Well, let me invite you to open up to the book of 1 John, and uh, we're going to continue where we left off several weeks ago. Uh, let me just say this. Uh, so many churches are starting like new sermon series, like, you know, the new you uh, in the new year. And uh, let me just say it, Travis, instead of doing the new you in the new year, we're just going to talk about the Antichrist. Is that okay? Like... Apples to apples, right? I mean, we're just uh, New Year, New You, Antichrist. Like, what? It's all the same, maybe, maybe not. I don't know, uh, but that's just where we we find ourselves and where we picked up off uh, from several weeks ago. And uh, you know, we're going to get going over the next six to eight weeks, kind of nonstop through First John. I, I hate that it's been a little bit choppy, but we've been doing some things that are necessary, and so we'll be able to sort of sense the flow and the structure of the text uh, over over the next few months as we sort of wrestle with this. Um, I've been looking forward to this one, uh, primarily because it's always fun to talk about the Antichrist, all right? Uh, and the reason why that's funny is because, or fun, is because nobody knows who the Antichrist is, all right? Look at your neighbor right now and say, it could be you. And then look at yourself and go, it could be me. I don't know, all right? Um, we don't know who he is or, or really what it is, but the text sort of gives us some things to sort of uh, intimate in a certain direction and so it, it's sort of, it's, it's appropriate, I think, and uh, as, as, as much as I've looked at the news over the past few months and how we're living in the end times uh, by most political commentators uh, and all that's there. So it's good for us to know uh, who he is and uh, more specifically uh, what the spirit of the Antichrist is. Now, just a quick shameless plug, just real quick. Um, in uh, two weeks, I believe, we'll talk about it next week. Um, I'm going to be teaching a class on Wednesday nights here, open to anybody, uh, male, female, young, old. Well, if you're too young, you need to go to youth or students. But the idea is that you come, bring your family, uh, drop them off at one of our ministries. And then I'm going to teach for an entire semester uh, on eschatology on the end times. We're going to talk about amillennialism and premillennialism. We're going to talk about the Antichrist, the mark of the beast. Uh, we're going to talk about a lot of different things and just kind of wrestle through it. It's an open-ended class. It's going to start at 6.15. It's going to end at 7.15. So you can go home and get your kids ready for school the next day. Uh, but I want to encourage you to come and be a part of that. Uh, we'll talk about all kinds of things. I'm going to teach it like a seminary class. And so you're going to see the different views. Uh, we'll have lots of lively discussion. Uh, and then we'll save the arguments for Larry Thompson. And he can deal with those uh, after the class is over. So, uh, and he'll, he will outsmart all of you, I promise. So, all right. Uh, just by show of hands, we're going to get into the text, I promise. Um, how many of you know, uh, when I use the phrase catfished, what I mean by that? How many of you know what that phrase means? All right. How many of you don't know what that means? Raise your hand. It's okay to admit. All right. So what happens right now is I'm showing the generational divide in, in our church. All right. The youngins know what catfished is. The gray hairs, the boomers, the legacies, somewhere between, you're like, ah, is that where you stick your hand in a hole and a, and a fish bites, all right? That is not what catfishing is, all right? So let me explain it. So years ago, there was a, a docuseries that came out and it was called Catfish. And the idea behind the docuseries was there was this gentleman who had fallen smitten and in love with this woman through Facebook. And what the docuseries begins to sort of unfold as it sort of begins to go on, this really happened, is that the longer the time went on, the more the woman that the man fell in love with, because he never met her, it, it sort of, there seemed to be holes in her story. And what, what ends up finding out towards the end, I'll just sort of give away the, the end so you understand the phrase, and I'll tell you how it ties to the text, is that an individual had entirely made up 
From the picture that she posted on Facebook to the friends that she solicited on Facebook to the experiences, to the work, to the age, like this woman that this man fell in love with entirely did not exist. She was completely made up. And the term catfish, it comes from this idea of, of when these Alaskan fishermen would catch these cod, they would ship them off to China. And they'd get to China, uh, the cod, because they got real docile in the tanks, they weren't moving around, they didn't taste like cod anymore, they didn't taste like fish. So somebody had the idea, if we put catfish in the tank with the cod as we ship them to China, it'll continually stir those cod up so that their muscles and their flesh won't atrophy and they'll still taste like cod when we get them to where it is that we want them to go. And so the idea of being catfished means that you've been sort of tricked into thinking one thing about a person, but then you find out later on that they are not who they portrayed themselves to be. Now, many of us have experienced this in the context of, context of friendships or relationships. I thought I knew this person, and then I saw them react in a certain way that, that just made me think, do I really know this person or not? Well, the same thing was going on in the church as John writes in chapter two, because there was a group of individuals that, that everybody thought they knew, but over time and subtly, they began to realize that these people were not the same people that they thought they were. In other words, in, in John's time, these people, they didn't know it yet, but they had been catfished into thinking one thing about a set of believers or unbelievers and believing they were a part of the faith, but then finding out later on that these guys entirely had nothing to do and in fact had forsaken um, the beliefs, the core values, the core beliefs that the church had, they had walked away from entirely. And so they get characterized in this way as being called the anti-Christ. Now I want you to look at your text and we're gonna pick up in verse 18. And I want you to notice how the text reads in verse 18. It says, children, and notice the phrase antichrist that's used twice. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that antichrist is coming, so now many antichrists have, have come. So, so listen, at first glance when you read through this, this is not exactly uh, what I would say in the translation as smooth conversational English. Like we don't talk this way, text this way, or email this way. And there seems to be something peculiar going on where in one instance, you've got antichrist being singular. And then in one instance, you've got antichrist being plural. And we're used to referring to the antichrist in the singular primarily. And so why would John, when he writes this to the church, why would he refer to the many antichrists that exist? Well, uh, uh, probably a better way to render this out of the ESV, which is the translation that I'm using, to sort of help make some sense out of this, I just sort of translated it on my own as this. And it says, as you have heard that the singular antichrist is coming, but pay attention, there are many antichrists who have come and are presently here with us. And so in John's time, as he writes to the church, he's acknowledging the fact that there are people who are referred to in a very harsh, uh, descriptive word as the Antichrist. Now raise your hand if you've ever believed that you were worshiping next to someone who might be the Antichrist. Raise your hand if you just lied and didn't answer that question. Listen. In the scripture, what happens is there's, there's really four genres of scripture in the New Testament. 
that allude to the Antichrist. And in First and Second John being one genre, it refers to the Antichrist not as a person, but in particular as an idea, as a doctrine or a pervading thought that had infiltrated the church and had begun to change people for the worse, so much so that John begins to identify it. Now, in its most literal sense, the word antichrist, it means against Christ or perhaps in the place of Christ. Against Christ or in the place of Christ, I'll elevate myself or I will elevate an idea that begins to attack the person and the work of Christ. But we also find in the idea, the person, and I want to show you just this real quickly, the person of the Antichrist. And we see this predominantly in two places, Revelation 12 and 13, the beast. But in 2 Thessalonians 2, I want you to see this, where he says this in writing to the church. He refers to the Antichrist as the lawless one. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. So let me just say one quick thing about this. Thessalonians is referring to a person. And in verse eight, he's alluding to sort of the apocalyptic end time war with all, uh, the, the war to end all wars. But I want you to notice really quickly that the way he refers to Jesus punishing his enemies is it's not about strategery in one sense or flanking him on the left or flanking him on the right. Yes, strategery, I just use it, it's a real word, okay? Um, he, he's not referring to a strategy to defeat the enemy. What he's simply saying is that when Christ comes back by the breath of his mouth, his enemies will be destroyed. So the apocalypse is not some big battle where we're going to go back and forth between one another and we hope the good guy wins. No, according to scripture and according to Revelation 19 and 20, Christ comes back and out of the breath of his mouth, he brings to nothing what's before him and his enemies. But while there's a person of the Antichrist, the thrust of the text this morning that I want us to get is really about the spirit of the Antichrist. If we read a, a little bit ahead in, in 1 John, we see in, verse, in chapter 4, verse 3, where he says this, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is presently in the world already. So concurrently, right now, as, as we live and breathe and eat, presently, the spirit of the Antichrist is amongst us. Maybe not in this room, maybe it is, maybe it's not. Interestingly, when Newsweek was still around uh, several years ago, they conducted a survey of evangelicals that, that believed in biblical prophecy. And of that survey, several thousand were queued up. And over 60% of those surveyed believed that the Antichrist was alive currently, right there, the person. And that the end times were just around the corner and that things were about to happen and things were about to go downhill. While we don't know definitively if that be the case, what we do know according to the text is that the spirit of the Antichrist, listen to me, their time is definite. Notice in verse 18 where he says this, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. 
And so we ask this question, or scholars do, they say, well, what does he mean by the last hour? Does this mean literally we have 60 minutes until he returns? If that's the case, prepare ourselves, right? Let's bring the worship band back up and let's just go that way. That, what a great way to go. What does he mean by this phrase? And so scholars go back and forth on, is it, is it a thousand more years or 500 more years? And, and definitively, what everybody sort of circles back around to, the, the reason why John uses this phrase, and it's something that I want us to capture this morning and not blow past this, because I think it's imperative to understanding the text. What he means by the phrase, it is the last hour. He uses that phrase and terminology to emphasize a sense of urgency that needs to exist in the life of the church. A sense of urgency that people need to hear and respond to the gospel. A sense of urgency that I'm not promised tomorrow or next week, or I'm not promised to make it to 65 or 67 when I want to retire. That I'm not promised next month or another year, because what will happen in many of us is we'll be talking and having this conversation come November in, in, in 2020. Christmas time is already here. The time has gone. Another year. And, and here it is. And oftentimes we don't realize that we're in the midst of those things. But the idea is this sense of urgency that exists within the life of the church to go and to proclaim and to share the gospel. And so one of the things that I want us to capture this morning, if you don't hear anything else I say, this is not a sermon on the Antichrist. This is a sermon regarding the urgency of the gospel for the people of God, that one of the differences between churches that grow and those that do not is the ones that grow have captured the idea of an urgent gospel, that they believe that people are perishing and they believe that it's their responsibility to proclaim the gospel to those that do not know him and to share urgently that need of salvation in the lives of other people that need to know the good news. They understand the urgency and the time and that they're not promised tomorrow. And so their time is definite, but I want you to see elsewhere that their tactic is deception. Read down in verse 26 and notice where he says this as he sort of summarizes all things. He says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to what? What does it say? Trying to deceive. So here's the deal. The spirit of the Antichrist is one of deception. It's one of subtlety. It's one of a, a little bit of an erosion of doctrine here, a, a little bit of undermining here. It's a work and it's a ploy that doesn't just directly oppose Christ, but rather focuses more on redefining him, painting him in a, in a different image, reimagining Jesus. The spirit of the Antichrist is one that always diminishes the person and the work of Christ. That his, his, his sacrifice on the cross was not that meaningful. It chips away at his deity and it rejects his work of atonement on the cross. This is the work and the spirit of that. It's really about a delusion of, of doctrine, an erosion of a right understanding of what that doctrine is and what it needs to be. And so the tactic is subtle 
It seems to be almost, you don't even notice, it's the frog in the kettle. You don't know that the water's heating up around you and, and you need people that are, that are in the truth and full of the spirit to sometimes call those things out inevitably where, where they are. But I want you to notice in verse 19 what happens to these people. Those who dilute the doctrine of Christ and the work of Christ in verse 19, they inevitably forsake the fellowship Notice in verse 19, it says this, they go out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. That word continue, we've seen it before, abide, to remain. It's the Greek word meno, M-E-N-O. They would have remained with us. They would have abided. They would have persevered alongside of us. They would have been steadfast with the people of God, walking and pursuing the things of God. But they went out so that it might become plain that they are all not of us. Let me caution you just very briefly. I caution the early service in this way too because the tendency is when I read this this week, I instantly start thinking about people that may or may not have left this fellowship in the past 12 months. And you go, maybe, maybe, maybe they just had the spirit of the Antichrist in them. And I, I, wanna, I wanna say, don't do that. People leave and go to churches for a lot of different reasons. Sometimes good, sometimes bad, sometimes right, sometimes wrong. But not everybody who's struggling equally, we can say that the Antichrist must be on them. That, that would be a little bit ridiculous. But the text actually gives us a little bit of insight into defining what actually this, this perhaps might be. But the truth is, as one writer said this so well about verse 19, he says, some share our earthly company, but not our heavenly birth. So they're with us, they fellowship with us in a sense, they're in our Bible studies, they, we, they're in our homes, we break bread with them. They share our company, but they have not been born of the Spirit, and so inevitably they forsake the fellowship. Friend, I wanna tell you this. In verse 19, when he says, they went out from us, but they were not of us, the, one of the ways we demonstrate that we are of the faith is perseverance is proof of possession. Those who persevere to the end prove that they have been possessed in a good way by the Spirit of God and been changed. Perseverance is proof of possession. To put it another way, when we defect from the fellowship, it's evidence oftentimes of a defective faith. And what I mean by that, and I want to be crystal clear on this, and I want to speak to you millennials just real quickly on this. There's a tendency, and, and Gen Xers, I'm, I'm, a Gen, I'm between a Gen X and a millennial, and I, I hate generalizing things, but generally this is true. And I hear it a lot from young people. I love the Jesus that you talk about and the forgiveness of sins and the kindness and the grace and the compassion, but I really don't like the church that he serves. I love Jesus, and I love reading about him, but I don't like the church. Friend, listen to me. It is not possible to love Jesus and hate the church. It's possible to be disappointed at times with the church. But, but here's the thing that you and I need to all come to grips with. The church is full of broken, sinful people that make mistakes. The church is full of people that mess up. And, and our job, one of my jobs as a, as a pastor, uh, being here and, and having the privilege of leading you guys, when we make mistakes, we want to own them. 
We don't want to ignore them. We don't want to pretend they, they didn't happen. Uh, we don't want to uh, sort of uh, just sort of dust them underneath the carpet and cover them up. We want to lean into those things and recognize that stuff. But it is impossible to speak despairingly about the bride of Christ and yet still claim to love Jesus. If you talk negatively about my wife, Haley, we're going to come to fisticuffs, okay? There's going to be a quarrel. We're going to have words. And we're going to have a conversation because I love her and I will protect her. Friend, one of our jobs is to preserve the unity of spirit in the church. It is to protect our church. Not to be naive. And I'm not talking about offering feedback, but I'm talking about a harshness in a critical spirit that can oftentimes pervade many churches, not, not just ours and, and us as individuals. But look with me again at verse 20 as he continues on. And we see that he makes this peculiar statement. He says, but you have been anointed by the Holy One and have all knowledge. And scholars go back and forth on what this means. And just to summarize uh, 20 pages of debate that I read this week, uh, it just simply means this, to be anointed by the Holy One means that you have received the Holy Spirit of God through the Word of God. Like God has indwelt you. He's the guarantee of the deposit that God is gonna fulfill his promises in, in your life that have been delivered by the word of God, the truth of God, to be anointed by the Holy Spirit, to be anointed by the Holy One. And you have this knowledge. And verse 21 goes on, he says, I write to you not because you don't know the truth, but because you do know it. Now listen to this. We live in a day and age where all these new sages and, and, and wise teachers are claiming to know these new insightful things about Jesus. Let me tell you what real theology is. Let me tell you what the real Jesus is supposed to look like. And some of that's a response to just bad teaching and bad preaching. But listen, our flags should always go up and our arms should always stiffen anytime anyone ever says, male or female, that I have some new insights that have never been discovered or said or proclaimed about Jesus. And if you want to know him, you come to my flock, buy my book and buy my bobblehead and put it on your desk and you will be blessed. Like we don't do that, okay? Ray Rayleigh may do that every once in a while. We don't do that, friend. Like we stiff arm that kind of stuff and we go, wait a minute, man. Like what are you talking about? This new Jesus. What John is simply saying is, I'm reminding you. I'm not telling you new things. I'm reminding you of old truths. It's one of the primary responsibilities of the pastor is just simply say, there's some old truths that maybe we've forgotten that we just need pastorally and gently to be reminded of and, and to be nudged towards in a certain direction. And so he says in verse 22, he goes on, he says, well, who's the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? So when you ultimately ask the question, what is the spirit of the Antichrist? Well, John identifies it. It's the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. And so I'm in a little bit of a feisty mood this morning because I've been off. So let me pick on the seminary students for just a minute and myself. When I went to seminary, I read a couple books and all of a sudden I thought I knew, I knew enough. And pretty soon I became a heretic hunter. And what I mean by that is that every rock underneath it in, in the teaching and the programs, everything like had some kind of heretical idea sort of underneath the stone. And so I was like, I'm going to be the guy that uncovers and makes sure that there's fidelity in the gospel. And what happened is my heart began to change and I be became a huge critic. 
where everything was outside of, of Orthodox Christianity and it needed to be challenged and rebuked and I need to find men and women to stand up for those kinds of things. And can I just say, please don't be that guy. You're annoying if you are. Like I had my wife tell me like, this is kind of annoying. Like I didn't, I mean, what are, you, what are we doing here? Okay. And oftentimes there are people in our lives, all they're looking for is controversy. I'm not talking about not guarding doctrinal fidelity, but I am saying this, that in this culture and in this day and age, the Greek describes it like this. Some of us need to take a chill pill and relax. And just be like, hey, man, it's, it's, it's okay. Now, if we see something repetitively, we go to our elders, we go to those who are in authority over us. But what, what John does, and my point in saying this, is what he identifies as the spirit of the Antichrist specifically is this, the one that denies that Jesus is the Christ. Like That's the parameter in this text. The one who denies the father and the son. And so what does this tell us? Remember, he's writing to the church. And I think what this lends itself to in the text that John's trying to make a point to the church is this, that the greatest danger of the church lies from within, not without. The greatest danger of the church often lies from within and not outside. We often want to blame culture or blame outside influences, and they're wicked, and we, 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 don't, we shun those things. But more churches are, are torn apart, not because of outside influences, it's because of the inside influences that are pervading the culture and, and, and who the church actually is. And I would even go so far as to say this, it is better to be divided by truth than united by error. Like that's harsh, I know. But I would rather be divided rightly by truth and the right things than be united with a false understanding. If I were to take my relationship with Haley and, and if, if I uh, were, were committing adultery with other women, you would think she would want to know that, right? Or would she just want to be, be, be united in, in the context of error? Of course not. Like we think we'd say, well, that's egregious and, and, and that's outlandish. But, but the idea is one in this text of, of this doctrinal fidelity that exists. I, I had a member in a, in a previous church that had been a member long before I ever got there. He'd been there for about 20 years. And I was going through uh, John's gospel and we spent you know, a pretty good significant amount of time. And you read through John, you, he starts talking about the divinity of Jesus and the word and you deal with Trinitarian issues. And, and so you're just constant. Every week when I would talk about Jesus and who he was, he, I would just see him, he would just shift in his seat. He couldn't, I didn't know if like, you know, he had some kind of corrective surgery on his bottom, but like he'd shift from right to left, you know, and he just would squirm. It took him about six weeks. And then all of a sudden I came to the office on a Monday morning. And I had this like eight page email about all the things he'd been taking copious amounts of notes, about all the ways in which I had missed who Jesus was and that he wasn't fully God, that he was, he was, he was a God. He was a good man. He was a moral teacher. And, and so I wrestled back and forth with him for a little bit. I found out inevitably he just wanted to argue about things. And so I realized that uh, after, after a while. But towards the end of our conversation, when I cut it off, he confided that he, he essentially, without saying it, he had converted to a Jehovah's Witness understanding of who God was. And he had lost 
the deity of Jesus in the process. And so we had to have circle back conversations. And the reason why I tell you that is to say those things can happen to anyone. Those things can creep up on on many of us. And so the question that we end with is how do we unite against those things and with those things? And the answer has been given in the word. Look in verse 24. How do we unite against the spirit of the Antichrist? Notice what he says. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If, If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and the Father. In other words, what he's saying in the question, how do we how do we combat these things? He's essentially saying this: embrace the authority of Scripture. Like this is the answer, is biblical authority over our lives. Now you say, well, what's biblical authority? Well, real quickly, I'm glad you asked that question because here it is. It's an understanding of the Bible's divine inspiration, complete truthfulness, and that it is the final word in our life. Like this is it. Not our, our history, uh, not, not man's opinion or voices, but it is simply the final word in our life. I want to end this morning by jumping back up to verse 18. And here's how I want to end with you this morning. I believe the entirety of this text is written under the umbrella of of the urgency of the gospel and that people need to hear. Like this is the the, the larger idea in, in in a scenario and in a scene in which people are walking away from the doctrine of Christ. And so I want to ask you this question this morning as we end. How urgent is it within your heart, within your life, to go and find someone who is far from God and to tell them about the good news of Christ? How urgent is that for you? I know this may seem like a low blow, but I'm going to say it. Some of you watched that video or you saw the video, you saw what happened in White Settlement. And it's a harsh video, you shouldn't watch it. But the two men that were on the security team, think about this. They're just waking up another day at church. And they didn't go home. Our hospitals, our streets, our cities, Our state, our country are filled with people who who don't get to go home for lots of different reasons. There are people, even literally as we talk and as we worship, that they are perishing without any knowledge or understanding of who Christ is. I know that's a little heavy-handed this morning. So let me back it up just a little When you talk about a a 2020 vision for Travis, if there's one thing that I would say we need to capture and we need to get and we need to lean on and be relentless about is that we need to believe that we have the good news of Jesus, that truth, and that we need to urgently be telling people who don't know him. This past week, I went and visited one of our members, Jeff Hornback in the hospital. He thought he was having chest pains, thought it might be a heart attack. Um, joking with him, I think it just turned out to be old age, you know. When I got there and sitting with he and Camille, um, the doctor had left and we were just talking and Jeff, Jeff said something to me that made me so proud to be his pastor. He said, um, he called me preacher. Um, 
it's what the old people do. Preacher, let me tell you something. He said, uh, my nurse came in here a minute ago and she said, um, I just want you to know my name's so-and-so, wrote her name on the board. She said, but I want you to know that I'm your advocate before your doctors. I'm an advocate for you. If you know Jeff, he, he walks with the Lord, he and Camille. And here's, here is Jeff's response. He's telling me, he's saying this. He said, but preacher, listen, I've been listening to your sermons and I know you talked about an advocate not too long ago. And I told that woman, you ain't my advocate. Christ, our Lord, is my advocate. And my advocate wants to know you and he wants to be your advocate. And he just, into the gospel he goes. I think I high-fived him. I put him in a chokehold. I was like, yes. Like, this is it. Like, this is it. That's how you do that urgently believe that this this nurse, master's degree in nursing, sharp as a tack, she needed to know Jesus. So he did his part. Come on. Chastise you. Like if we don't get excited about that, like I'm coming back in next week with a sledgehammer and a ball and chain, okay? Like this is it. This is what we celebrate. This is the story that we tell. We rejoice in that, that he was obedient to what God had called him to do. He was obedient with an urgent gospel. This week, my prayer is, my ask is this, who, who amongst us would just simply say, God, help me be urgent with the gospel with someone this week? Like, God, help me see it. Let me find them. I may have them. I may not. It'd be the person who cuts my hair, my neighbor, a coworker, a student. Like, what if everybody here said, Lord, my prayer this morning is that you would help me see the urgency of the gospel and then let me do it. Do you understand what I'm asking? Help me see the urgency of the gospel and then help me act. So this morning, here's your invitation. Alongside your pastor, alongside your elders, is to come down this aisle before this altar as a physical symbol of like, that's where I'm at. Help me be urgent and help me be obedient. That's your response this morning. Help me be urgent, help me be obedient. I'm gonna be down front praying for my own life that God would put some people in my path that I would go get in the way of their path to be urgent. Would you join me down front as we pray and ask our God to do the same in your hearts? family's hearts. And then let's just see what the Lord does in our church with an attitude like that for the next 12 months, what happens and what changes. Stand with me. I'm going to pray and then we'll respond as God leads. Father in heaven, help us understand our need for you daily, forgiveness of sins that have been given through your son, Jesus. You put on everyone's heart here in this room today an urgent need and desire and understanding to go and to tell. Help us, God, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Would you join me as we pray and sing?